you're a female founder of a tech startup, yet you still feel like an outsider? In a world that is run by Silicon Valley, how do we, women entrepreneurs, create the businesses that change the future while overcoming the barriers of the tech industry? This show cuts through it all and is your guide in exploring tech confidently as you become the best founder you can be. I'm Maxine Kramer, founder and CEO of Menenia, where we want you to own technology and change the world. We fast track bold and impactful women into the world of startups by making tech as simple as everyday English. This means no more overwhelming jargon and instead having the tech literacy to funnel your big ambition into a resounding success. This is Cutting Through Tech. Are you not from a sales or engineering background and are wondering how to raise funds in the tech industry? I'm Maxime and I am excited to share another conversation that I've had in this series about why women are walking away with only 2.3% of all investment going into tech businesses. Today I'm joined by the wonderful Philip Elliott, who has over 20 years of experience in the venture capital business. Now, that is, in my opinion, extraordinary. Um, has gone through, you know, the original dot-com bubble in the early 2000s and has seen really what it takes for uh, businesses to, you know, to last through that. He is currently a partner at Orchid Black and still advises enterprise and clean tech startups today. Now, in this conversation, we chat about indeed the resilience and what it takes for businesses to do well through times of hardship, what the current investment landscape looks like, and what the patterns are really that he's noticed um, talking to lots and lots of entrepreneurs over the years. And we try and get into a little bit more of the nitty gritty as to what really differentiates women. Someone which we agree, someone which we may see things slightly differently, but I think that's the the beauty of this conversation, right? Is trying to understand a bit more what those different points of view could be. I think it's one of the most valuable insights into the mind of an investor that you can get, if I'm honest. So yeah, without further ado. Welcome to the show, Philip. I am so excited to have you here. How are you today? Great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. We're going to have a lot of fun today because this is a, another episode in our investor series where we look at why uh, women are just not getting a fair share <laughs> of the pie out there when it comes to investment. And Philip, you've got a incredible background in this industry and in VC investment and everything you do now. Tell us a little bit more about that. Like, how did you get into the tech industry? I'm kind of embarrassed to tell the story because business school students always ask me, how do I get into venture capital? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> it was such a different time when I got into it. It was uh, uh, late 1999, which was when the internet bubble was at its peak, right? Mm-hmm. The Amazon and uh, so forth was all the all the rage. And venture firms were growing very, very fast. So the, the capital under management, if you think about this industry, the number of jobs is proportional to the dollars under management. And firms were growing, you know, a $50 million fund would suddenly raise a $200 million fund. Uh, everyone was hiring. Uh, and I was fortunate to be introduced to a firm. I didn't even really know what venture capital was, but I was in strategy consulting and, and working with much larger businesses, AT&T and Comcast and so mm-hmm. forth. So was intrigued by the idea of working with 
startup companies, tech companies, particularly with small tech companies. And so I was fortunate to get the job, but it was uh, a very different hiring time than it has been ever since uh, mm -hmm. as those firms grew. And the bubble obviously collapsed, but I was fortunate to stay in the industry for the last 20 years. And when the bubble collapsed, actually, were the most mm -hmm. educational times for me. And that was when you learn what, what makes a company live through the hard times and which mm -hmm. ones uh, succeed and which ones fail. You know, that really was a huge devastation for the tech industry at the time. Um, so what kinds of companies made it through? Do you think it was their business model? Was it the uh, mindset of the founder or the team? What does make a company make it through that bubble? Great question. I would say two things were, were generally uh, key to success. One was a business model uh, and the second was a financing strategy. Mm -hmm. And those are different, right? They're linked, but they are two very different things. So from business model perspective, companies that really had a valuable product for their customers, you know, something that people were willing to pay for and had demonstrated that it was uh, a necessity for those customers. Other companies were trying to build things that were somewhat fanciful. They didn't really have that, that product market fit that we now, now call product market fit. The other was the financing strategy. Companies were building something really big and they would raise tons of money at very high valuations and build half of, you know, half of a Ferrari instead of building, you know, the Honda first and then building up. Mm -hmm. And so when the markets turned on them and capital wasn't readily available, all they had was half a Ferrari. They had no revenue, no customers. And they would say, hey, you know, it's halfway there to this, this brilliant vision. But financiers were not willing to fund that anymore, mm -hmm. because if you raised a ton of money at a very high valuation and had nothing to show for it, no investor wants to come into that. Mm -hmm. Your employees don't see any upside. So they, they leave. The companies that were more cautious had raised less money, built something small, got it out into the market, showed that the market wanted it. You know, those companies tended to be more successful. So sometimes you can have an okay business model and screw it up with the financing model. But generally, the ones that succeeded had both to plan ahead for when the markets aren't as generous as they were in 2000. Do you, do you think we're repeating the same mistake today? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I've been thinking about that a lot, particularly the last two years. With a global pandemic, I, I expected us to see another 2001 or another 2008. And weirdly, it's gone the other direction. Valuations are as high as I have ever seen them. Um, Zoom has made things, due diligence cycles faster. And so one of the things you saw in 2000 was you'd meet an entrepreneur and drop a term sheet on them in that first meeting. You know, you know nothing about the company. You've spent an hour with them and you're committing to an investment because it was so competitive, right? Yeah. They were worried that entrepreneur would go next door and get a term sheet. And interestingly, with Zoom, when people couldn't meet in person, they stopped doing some of the in-person lengthy due diligence visits that mm. they historically have done. And that shortened due diligence cycles. And I think that that adds to what's going on in the markets. Also, public markets are obviously clearly frothy, but that rapid, that shortened due diligence cycle leads to this, you know, mindset of, hey, you know, I'm just going to meet them on Zoom. I'm going to fire out a term sheet, and that that kind of behavior I really haven't seen since 2000. It's almost scary. I never thought of it from that perspective, uh, and how short that investment cycle almost is now. And even today, though, we see a lot of startups raising huge valuations, like huge amounts. And I think a lot of people reading it are a bit like, what does this do? Like, how is this useful? We definitely still have fantastic startups coming up through the ranks and it's very exciting to see, but also a good chunk where it's like, you know, they raised all this money, they have a pool table now, fantastic, but what's actually happening? You mentioned that product market fit, you know, the right business model and the financing strategy. And in that sense, do you think we're repeating a bit of what's happened before in the bubble? 
Definitely. I mean, that's the other the other parallel to 2000 is the size of the rounds that are getting done with companies that have very little traction for a long period of time, particularly after the bubble class in 2001. And you know, there were there were ebbs and flows, but for the most part, there were milestones that companies had to be at in order to raise certain amounts of capital. And, and that has changed in the last couple of years. I mean, money is flowing to companies with with very little evidence of traction and raising a lot of money early on. And it's hard for me to identify exactly what what drives that and what drove that in the in 2000 and what drives that today, right? Mm-hmm. And so investors look at public market valuations and say, hey, if that company is trading at 50 times revenue, then this little company here will be incredibly valuable when it gets bigger. So mm-hmm. let's get there fast. But the other piece is just supply and demand of capital. Anytime the asset class gets a lot of capital into it, it's not like the number of entrepreneurs changes that much from year to year. And so when there's more capital flowing into the asset class, that means there's more dollars trying to find a place to be put to work. And you've seen fund sizes grow a lot in, in the last uh, five or 10 years. And that means people have to deploy more capital. So when there's more capital flowing in the industry, you tend to see more and more competition for the best companies. Mm-hmm. And that means high valuations. It means bigger check sizes. But I think you're absolutely right that there's some echoes of 2000 in the size of the rounds and the valuations relative to the minimal traction in some mm-hmm. cases. So for someone listening who is interested in, in raising VC investment or, or capital, what would you say are true indicators of traction, like those key milestones that if you are doing your due diligence, if you are as a startup taking the right steps in the right direction and you're not <laughs> smoke and mirrors, what does traction look like? The simplest one is customers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and revenue. That's the most obvious one. But I think when you unpack that a little further, you say, are the customers you have indicative of a broader market change? Most companies, unless you're really struggling, you can find those first one or two customers. There's always someone that wants your product. And I think the question for investors when they're looking at that is, is that traction? Are those customers the first wave of a whole industry that looks like them? Mm-hmm. Or is are those customers you know, one-offs that just happen to align with your needs. What you're saying is it's it's not just the business model, it's obviously also the market. So if you've got a business model where more money in produces even more money out. So you do need to have a sizable market that you can address and you do need a type of solution that causes either uh, a long customer lifetime value or like a certain rate that means that once you've got a customer that you know you're going to be able to make more from that customer. Can you speak a bit more to the types of business models that you feel are very well suited to venture capital? Well, you touched on one, which is when more fuel on the fire, so to speak, Mm -hmm. makes you grow faster and creates value. That's a reason to take venture capital because you as the owner of the business are going to be better off if you bring in some dilution because it will allow you to grow faster. The other is when you're starting a business. There are a lot of business models that are very difficult to self-fund. So if I have a consulting firm, for example, I don't need venture capital money. I can go out and and my first client starts paying me. I can offer that service from day one. I can get paid. That kind of business doesn't require venture capital. And there are a lot of businesses that you can bootstrap, you know, particularly mm-hmm. in this day and age with the when the cost of developing software has gone down so much with open source software and cloud computing, right? You can you can spin up an app or a website or and you can start collecting revenue, you shouldn't take venture capital for those businesses. You don't need to, right? 
But if your business model requires capital upfront in order to build something mm -hmm. before you can sell it, and the, the, the obvious case is if you're in hardware and materials and so forth, you need to raise a ton of money. And even in software, enterprise software, sometimes to build software of the required uh, complexity and security considerations and all that, you just can't bootstrap that. You need to raise money from somewhere. And that's either friends and family, a venture capital fund, et cetera. You know, no one's going to lend money to, to a business like that. Let's go into the making the, the kind of your MVP or your first proper product. Because what I've noticed is that a lot of people I talk to are like, you know, software development's actually extremely expensive, which I understand. If you look at day rates for developers or salaries for developers, so moving beyond spinning up a site on Squarespace or something, even the concept of stitching together APIs and, and existing kind of components and open source software, you still need someone who's tech savvy to put them together. And what I'm noticing a huge trend of is, especially women, are, are finding opportunities. I believe there is a specific idea there. They are doing their due diligence in terms of business background, marketing, like, you know, figuring out the, the proposition. But in terms of actually creating an MVP, there's still that huge barrier because for them, it's tricky to even leverage things like, say, Stripe and so on to put that together into a, a first version. And so what would you recommend for them? They, they may not need quite the cash um, injection that a hardware business or like, say, a very serious enterprise business or machine learning type business might need, but it's still quite tricky to fund it either themselves or through friends and family because you are looking at like over 100K of investment there. What are your thoughts? The very earliest stage, typically institutional investors are not engaged at that level. Mm -hmm. And so that tends to be angels or friends and family. And, and that first step is obviously a barrier for entrepreneurship for a whole lot of people mm -hmm. because very few people have access to you know, half a million dollars from friends and family. But that's the only real source for it at that point. There's a growing number of angel groups and seed funds popping up, um, at least in the United States, that mm -hmm. are writing checks at that size. So I'm seeing a lot more investment activity at that range. And that's starting to address that barrier. I agree with you, it's very difficult. Though that said, it's much easier than it was 20 years ago. At least now you can get away with you know, $100,000 or $250,000 you can actually build something meaningful. That, that was not possible uh, 20 years ago. So it's headed in the right direction, mm -hmm. at least. Absolutely. There is a lot of money in the industry. There are huge check sizes being given, a uh, huge amount of deals. Still, though, when we look at the percentage of the capital, so of the sheer amount of money invested into female-founded companies, Crunchbase is reporting 2.3%, which is tiny. Just super broad to start with, what are your thoughts on that? Obviously, it's not a good sign for the industry because half the population is getting 2% of the capital. Mm -hmm. And so there are great entrepreneurs that are not getting funded or are not starting businesses or whatnot. We are not, as a culture, providing opportunities for all the entrepreneurs that could have great ideas, right? Mm -hmm. And so somehow that's a missed opportunity for all of us because those are great companies that are not being created. It's concerning to me. I don't know why that is the case. And I can certainly speculate, but it, it is concerning that that's the case. Yeah. Because I, the way I phrase it, right, is that, you know, we are all, as we've seen, especially in the last 18 months, we're all going digital and it feels very intangible, I think, to a lot of people, especially every day. But there is this entire digital equivalent to the world that's being built. And if it is built by predominantly 
men, you know, it can lead to semi-skewed results in the sense that if you think about, you know, say 50, 60 years ago, you have a local town, you know, John starts an auto repair business, Jane starts a bakery. Both are companies that are extremely, or businesses, you know, that are extremely valuable to the local town. Everyone uses them. It's not like one is a particularly female business, but it is um, indicative of like, you know, people tend to start slightly different businesses. So what would the world look like if we didn't have bakeries? So what is the part that we are missing? Like, we don't even know that we're missing because, you know, the Janes who are starting bakeries aren't being funded, say. What, what do you think about that? In your case, uh, both a man and a woman started a business, mm-hmm. right? And so your, your premise was women are starting a certain kind of business and not getting funded. I would go a step behind that, which is 50 or 60 years ago, most women weren't starting bakeries. They may have been serving food to their families and it may have been extraordinary food, but most of them weren't weren't starting their own business. It would be a very rare woman 60 years ago that was starting true, her own true, business. Yeah. And I think we have a little bit of the same challenge today. What are the preconditions for someone to be able to even start a business that could possibly get funded? So if to take your example, you know, what if Jane is expected to be at home with her children? Mm-hmm. And that's society's expectation, that's her family's expectation. She may be an extraordinary baker and never never have the opportunity to mm-hmm. start that business, right? Mm-hmm. Never never feel it it's it's socially acceptable to start that business. And while things have changed from the last 60 years, there are still some of those dynamics that I think have not changed. And it's not that Jane starts a bakery and doesn't get funding and the auto machine mechanic does get funded. It's that the circumstances for Jane to start that bakery may not exist or, or may have barriers that mm-hmm. don't exist for the man to start an auto mechanic shop. In your experience, have you found this difference? Have you found that women have struggled finding the right circumstance to go into a business of their own? So what I've seen, and I should say none of the firms I've worked at have tracked the demographics of founders, mm-hmm. tracked the pipeline of companies. But so this is purely anecdotal. What I can say in, in the last fund I, I uh, led, about 10% of our CEOs were women. And obviously that's a low, small number. It's not 2%, but it, it's still a very small number. But if I look back on all the companies I met, and we are investing in uh, about less than 1% of the companies we met would, would result in investment. I actually think 10% is higher than the percentage of the total. I don't think 10% of the companies we met were female-led. Mm-hmm. I think the percentage was actually substantially smaller from what I remember, so few female entrepreneurs. And so I think that's kind of what you'd expect because when you have a... Um, an environment that is particularly challenging, whether mm-hmm. to a whether it's a gender or minority, right? The ones that do get through tend to outperform, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that the one the companies that did show up on our door and present, the fact that we invested in a higher percentage of the female entrepreneurs than we did of the male entrepreneurs, meaning they were less than ten percent of deal flow, but ten percent of the ultimate investments, you'd kind of expect there. But I ask myself then, well, why was the percentage of companies that knocked on our door or we found, you know, why was that percentage so low? You know, and and I don't know exactly what it was, but it was certainly in the single digits. It's hard to ascertain because it's hard to go around and talk to a lot of people and say, why haven't you started a business? Because the people I meet are the ones who did. If I were to speculate, I would say uh, it's kind of three things I think about. And, And I start with who are the entrepreneurs that I meet? Who are the entrepreneurs that I funded? They tend to be people, whether male or female, in their mid 30s, 
but usually in their 40s and 50s, right? They've partly I was an enterprise software investor, so the companies tended to require a certain amount of domain expertise that mm -hmm. you don't have when you're 22. So it was someone who had spent 10 or 15 or 20 years in a in an industry, really understood the problems, probably had some financial uh, security, had 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 a, a successful career that they could then launch a business because they could look at their sector they're in, they, whatever, if they worked in supply chain management or whatever, and say, this is, this is a real problem. Mm -hmm. I know how to solve it. I'm now going to drop everything and go start a company. Um, and they tended to come from either uh, sales backgrounds, some product management, but more sales backgrounds or engineering backgrounds, mm -hmm. kind of your two typical founders. One is a sales guy, one is a, is a engineer kind of, that's the two most common paths. Um, and so I look back and say, well, why, why would that pool of candidates um, that come to us for money, why would they be disproportionately male? Mm -hmm. um, and that can only come with three things. You know, one is you know, glass ceilings in those industries, right? Uh, coming up in the engineering ranks or coming up through the sales ranks, Within companies, those typically are, have historically been very male dominated, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm, I'm finally seeing changes. I think I think you have an engineering background. You know, we're seeing a lot more women on the engineering side and, and mm -hmm. coming into engineering leadership positions um, in the last five years or so. But 20 years ago, that was very very rare. Mm -hmm. And similarly on the sales side, we haven't seen as much progress on the sales side as I would say on the engineering side in terms of. Sales still uh, very male dominated and sales mm -hmm. leaders are still mostly male, um, but slow changes, right? Um, but if that, if 20, you know, even 10 years ago, those people weren't in leadership positions in those roles that are the ones that naturally are stepping stones into uh, CEO or founder positions, that's one reason our pipeline may have been, you know, pretty weak over the last uh, number of years. Mm -hmm. um, the other is, you know, Sort of your example of 50, 60, 60 years ago, what are the social pressures against entrepreneurship? Mm -hmm. You know, what are what are the expectations? Um, our expectations in our culture different from men and women? You know, I feel like you're in your the age demographic that we're talking about that's common for entrepreneurs is often when people also have young children. Mm -hmm. And so do I feel like I observe, you know, when um when a man who has a young child at home starts a business or commits to an entrepreneurial role where he's working 80 hours a week and traveling five days a week, you know, society says, great, you know, you're, 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 you're working for your family. That's, that's great. You know, mm -hmm. a woman does the same thing and a, and a certain portion of people look down on that and say, mm -hmm. how can you do that? Right. So there's, there's weird pressures there that I probably don't even fully understand mm -hmm. as a man, but that, you know, the signals can be, uh, maybe not as strong or not as blatant as they were 50 years ago, but I think some of those signals are still there that are telling women that it's not okay mm -hmm. to be an entrepreneur when you have young children at home or young family. And so that, you know, I don't know how to unpack that, mm -hmm. but I think that's definitely a factor. You know, what are the, what are the approval, you know, who's, what are the expectations that, that we're all uh, living under? And the third one that we can't um, avoid, uh, we sort of have to address is, now let's say the woman has gotten through both of those gates, right? She mm -hmm. had a great career in engineering or sales, and she had the right experience to start a company, starts a company. Um, you know, you're walking into an extremely male fundraising environment, right? At all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I wish I could say there's no, you know, misogyny or bias or whatever, mm -hmm. but obviously there is, right? Mm -hmm. um, wherever there's men with wealth and power, um, we know from history going mm -hmm. as far back as time goes, that there are a subset that are going to abuse that, whether that's mm -hmm. Hollywood or venture capital, and um, 
fortunately in the Me Too movement, there's been more um, surfacing of that mm -hmm. and more um, awareness of that. But I have to believe for every story we hear in the press, there's a bunch more that were quietly settled behind mm -hmm. closed doors with, with, you know, venture capital firms have cash. It's one thing they have. They'll make those things go away. So there's we, we can't ignore that that is present in the industry. Um, and and it uh, when you have a virtually all male industry, it's it can be very daunting for women to raise money. Um, and the other piece that I think is more insidious, but uh, um, related is the bias that's introduced, whether consciously, I mean, there's, there's overt, um, uh, there's overt issues, right, sexism, and so forth. But the, the more subtle kind is almost is, I think, more prevalent and more you know, damaging, which is venture capital is a um, uh, it's a strange business because the decisions we make as investors are extremely high stakes with very little data. Right? Yeah. You know, you meet an entrepreneur, you spend best case a couple months getting to know them and understanding the business. And, you know, in, in a rapid environment like today, maybe that's that's measured in weeks, not months. And you're making a huge decision um, that's going to bind you for, for, you know, five to 10 years and, and mm -hmm. put a lot of, of, of capital at risk. Um, one of the things I've tried to do in my career is make that as data-driven as possible and objective, but there's, there's always a subjective element. There's always a, hey, you know, I just feel right about this company. Mm -hmm. And whenever there's that subjective element, I think people um, don't realize what signals they're reacting to. Mm -hmm. And so if, if subconsciously, not necessarily consciously, but if subconsciously someone has in their head that a CEO is, you know, a tall white guy with a full head of hair, you know, he, he finds himself gravitated, gravitating towards those CEOs without even realizing it. And so there are, um, you know, are there men who struggle to see women as those CEOs, right? Whether they consciously realize that or not. Um, and I think there's been some interesting studies done about uh, how venture funds or, or uh, investors, I don't know if it was venture funds or angels, described female entrepreneurs or female executives right and there's people use different words so there's that's the part that also is um is a challenge right you know how does are firms making objective decisions or are they making subjective decisions and when they're making subjective decisions how often are they introducing their own biases which gender is an obvious and common bias mm -hmm. that people may not realize they have so those are the kind of things i think about to say why why aren't we seeing a lot more women entrepreneurs um, and where does it start before it even gets into you know, giving me a pitch? There's a lot to unpack there. But first, I wanted to thank you for acknowledging just how tough an environment it is for women to go into and that there is bias and that there is um, a level of me too there and all that kind of stuff. So um, thank you for that. So I have a few questions now where... First of all, at the end, you mentioned indeed the, the bias, right? And, and you talk kind of more about the founder. And I can really appreciate that because there, there are tons of studies also just in corporate about how women leaders are described versus male leaders who are in similar roles, similar experience, right? But, but get very different types of adjectives <laughs> put towards yeah. them. When it comes to this type of bias that undoubtedly must in some way subconsciously happen, do you think it's more towards the founder or the entrepreneur themselves or towards the business? Because something else that I've heard a lot echoed is that, you know, sometimes women do come with a, say, a femtech 
business or a typically female business. And there is a level of, well, I can't relate to that perhaps, or like, I can't see how this would do well because it's not my world. Do you think that also subconsciously factors into these decisions or is it much more the founder themselves? I think it's more the founder. And the reason mm-hmm. I say that is you're, you're meeting entrepreneurs and businesses you know nothing about, mm-hmm. right? So I'm a software guy, I know a decent amount about software, but someone comes in with you know supply chain management for a certain kind of industry. I'm not an expert in that. <laughs> um, part of our job is to get up to speed very quickly on sub-segments you know, within, within the universe we play in, lots of little corners that you come across and we have to get up to speed very quickly within the context of the larger larger thing we know. So I think that's a skill that that investors are more comfortable with. So if you come to me with a business that is targeted at female consumers, well, my first thought is, hmm, I can do some math. That's 50% of the world, right? (laughs) That's a pretty large market, right? You know, so I I can't imagine there are others that may be much narrower uh, segments, but I can't imagine that being ruling something out, you know, to say, hey, that, that doesn't make sense. So I think it's much more common that it's the founders that mm-hmm. the, the bias is reflected towards. And whether that's women or people of color, there's lots of biases around mm-hmm. different things, even older people, you know, but we'll focus on gender because that's the an obvious one here. Yeah, it's said that gender is actually the predominant bias factor, even more so than race, ethnicity, background, upbringing, mm-hmm. economic upgra- upbringing or age. Gender is the the biggest one that, that influences decisions. I think that's really interesting. And that already is a step into the right direction of at least pinpointing a little bit more about what might be setting off this this type of unconscious bias. I mean, it's nothing you can change about when you walk into a pitch room. Like, you know, you can't just suddenly turn yourself <laughs> into a different gender. But um, perhaps there are ways that make efforts to strengthen that and to show why you as a person would be a good investment. Um, another question, and perhaps a slight challenge here is, I'd like to challenge it a little bit, is what you mentioned about women of a certain age indeed starting businesses, because I've also noticed that most women that are interested in in starting a a venture in tech, they are kind of 35 and above. And I think a lot of it comes from having done work, now starting a family and realizing what actually matters or what's important and also um, coming into their own opinion a bit more of like, hey, I actually think this is really, really important. And I think all of us do that as we get a bit older. And I think as well with the internet, there's been a huge rise in lifestyle businesses, you know, blogging and and on YouTube and on Instagram and so on. So I think there's a huge entrepreneurial spirit and a desire to work for themselves. Do you believe that it's just that kind of category? Because I I can't imagine that it's only lifestyle businesses that are seeing this boom. I really do think that especially compared to 20, 30, 40, 50, or even more so years ago, more and more women are looking to start that kind of entrepreneurial business. For those who are, it's not the family or the expectations that's that initial barrier. What else do you believe could be a barrier to them then getting all the way down the wiggly path to your front door as an investor? You asked earlier about getting that first 100,000 or first quarter million dollar Mm -hmm. check or whatever, you know, that... Um, that's a huge barrier. So if that's coming from the angel community, which are typically rich, older men, right? Um, you have these pitch events where alcohol is flowing freely. And, you know, so if I was starting a business as a woman, that's not a very welcoming environment. I think the fundraising process uh, just to get that first initial launch is tough. 
I have to believe that's a barrier because I, I think you're right. I think there are more women starting businesses than are getting to our front doors. And, and we, are, we are, I should say, seeing the percentage increase over mm -hmm. time. I can only observe that, yes, there's an entrepreneurial activity going on. And then what, what are the companies that we see? And, and maybe it's a little bit behind in the enterprise side. Those companies tend to take a little more capital up front. Um, and so you can ask the question, are, are women not getting the capital they need for enterprise software businesses? Or are women choosing uh, lower capital models because the fundraise process, like is it is it chicken or the egg, right? Are you yeah. assuming that the fundraise is going to be difficult and therefore opting to go with lifestyle businesses that don't require you to fundraise because you're assuming the fundraise can be hard. So I, I'm not sure which comes first mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure where the gap is. will be fascinating and maybe this is um, something you have access to with your listeners. I would love to hear from women entrepreneurs. Why aren't more of them getting to the series A stage or, mm -hmm. or, or whatnot? Because I, I, I just don't know. I wish I had an answer. No, so a few things I hear and I've observed anecdotally as well from everyone I've talked to, clients I've worked with, is firstly, I've seen a larger trend in D2C type of products than enterprise or B2B. And I think it is harder nowadays to be funded for D2C in the sense that, like, as you mentioned, in theory, there's less upfront capital required and there is a higher expectation of traction and having invested that first seed yourself somehow, you know, either through raising through friends and family and so on. So what then happens is, okay, but how do I build that, that MVP, right? They do accelerators, they do different programs, they, they get the concept of product market fit, but you still need a, a thing to test it with. And then there is that big gap of technology. You mentioned earlier, a lot of people come from a sales or engineering background, which I actually really love. I never looked at it that way, but it makes sense because sales they know really what the customer wants and needs. So they're very in tune with that product market fit and engineering. They're very in tune with what's feasible and what can be made and built. The small sample set I have from the women I've spoken to, they come from a corporate background, not necessarily in sales or engineering, but much more in strategy and do have a good grasp of all those concepts. But then in terms of turning that into building a product is tricky. And, and the thing I keep hearing from women is, I don't speak the language. And so they find it very hard to, even when they invest that first 10, 20, 30K into getting a freelance developer to get something made, it's very hard to steer that in the right direction. This is one of the reasons I, I do a program called Tech Literacy, where I try and, and address that to a certain extent. But this has been one of the bigger things I've noticed. Does that resonate or are you hearing different types of conversations when you talk to founders? That doesn't resonate, to be honest, or at least not resonate as a gender issue. You know, I think founders usually come from one of two sides. One is I really understand this market and I don't know how to build a product for it. Or I really understand technology, but I'm not sure exactly the needs of the market. I hear a lot of founders saying, hey, I need a technical co-founder. I need someone to build this. How do I do that? I've got this great idea. How do I? And that's male or female. So I love to understand more why, why people feel that it's hard to learn that language, right? Or that there's... Uh, um, is it, are there particular challenges for women, right? Are they not being taken seriously by, uh, potential technical co-founders or things like that? Like where, where is the gender component in that challenge? So that's quite funny because I wouldn't go as far as to say it's obvious, but I think, you know, ultimately technology is also a very male dominated industry. So I think as a woman coming into that with little experience, little background, it's daunting and challenging to be able to indeed speak that language and be understood or taken seriously, especially when you're in that stage of learning that language. 
So you're trying your best to express what it is you're looking to achieve. And either it's not understood or it is dismissed to a certain extent. Because a lot of women have told me, you know, they get the kind of response of, well, you don't know what you're doing. Actually, you should do it this way or, you know, and they've got a very specific vision in mind and it's very difficult for them to communicate that. I personally can resonate with that as I'm an engineer, right? And, and my background is indeed computer science. But even then at university, I was one of 8% in my course. <laughs> <laughs> and then as I went into development later, and I, my background is also a lot of D2C, especially iPhone development, so a lot of iOS development, it was extremely hard to be taken seriously at times. That's just a side effect of being in, in a male-dominated industry, and it doesn't bother me as much, but I think it is definitely a reality. So I, I wonder if there is a parallel there if not stronger, for people who then don't even speak that language, right? Because I can at least talk right. at a technical level with, with my colleagues and fellow people in the industry. But if you don't even have that, I believe that is a, is a huge barrier. But it's interesting that um, you mentioned indeed anyone has that kind of initial technical barrier. So I'm curious to see if you, what will you think about that? Because this, again, this is just my anecdotal and personal experience that I've observed. Absolutely an issue, right? The glass ceilings, the challenges in both sales and, and engineering. So both mm -hmm. of those are very male dominated. And so very few women, well, ho hopefully a lot more now, but fewer women come up through those ranks in either side, you know, that, that are prepared to be entrepreneurs. But I would expect that that's a challenge for people early in their career that may get pushed out of the career paths that would lead them to the skills to be an entrepreneur. But the person who now has the expertise to start a business, mm -hmm. who understands an industry well enough, it would be surprising to me, and maybe this is just a bias because I'm coming from the enterprise space, if someone at that point in their career hasn't learned to speak the, the language, right? The, the, mm -hmm. the entrepreneurs that I hear, both male and female, who say, I don't speak the language, particularly quite young, right? And they're starting consumer businesses and they you know, maybe you may or may not have the relevant experience to even start a business at all. But mm -hmm. for the folks we're dealing with in their 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, they have um, they've gotten past that. So the, the ones we're seeing are the ones that have have run that gauntlet of being in a male dominated industry and, and have succeeded. And they're able to start a company because they have developed an expertise in a domain. That means they have already learned to communicate with engineers if they're not themselves an engineer, if they're on the sales or the marketing or the strategy side. I think that might even then be indicative of the issue, as you mentioned, you know, a, a smaller percentage of the people you talk to or that you see at, at, at your level are, are women. So perhaps the fact that they're being derailed at that point is actually what lowers that, that pipeline number significantly. If you're in a sales career or an engineering career and you're 25, and you're in a hostile environment surrounded by like your career, you may not continue in the mm -hmm. careers that ultimately prepare you to be a founding CEO, right? So I, I absolutely believe that that is part of the pipeline problem. Again, something I've noticed anecdotally is that for many women, when they are 35 and above and they're starting this kind of business, they do slightly change industry in the sense that they might come with domain expertise in a particular market but it doesn't intersect yet with technology to an extent. Again, this is a very D2C thing, I think, where the way to reach those customers, for example, could be technical, but that part of the equation is completely new to them. So they've not yet been derailed in the past 
by technology or starting in that industry, they come from a different world, like for example, retail, right? So if you think about retail and tech infusing, which is, is hugely popular, they might know that space really well and they think, great, I can, I can make that digital. I can use or leverage technology in a way that, that does something new and innovative. But that part of the equation is completely new. I wonder if that then means that they are experiencing that same level of, you know, having to get to grips with this industry at a later stage of their career, if you will. It's a great point. I, I, I think you're probably right. I, I don't often deal with those entrepreneurs mm-hmm. um, because I don't do consumer. But now when you describe it that way, it does resonate with me that that, mm-hmm. that could be absolutely be a challenge. Um, but then what's really the interesting is the, the difference, I suppose, indeed, between enterprise and, and D2C, because perhaps founders listening haven't considered that, okay, when I'm getting into my pitch or, or the environment I'm in, actually being D2C or B2B or enterprise, there are certain different trends within the group of people, the types of businesses, where the founders are at themselves in that space, if that makes sense. So I think it's hugely interesting to just dissect that and, and speculate and, and bounce back and forth about that. You yourself are an investor now as well, privately. What stands out about the founders that you invest in? What are you looking for? A couple of traits that I've seen of founders over the years that were successful. First and foremost, no preconceived notions mm-hmm. of how the world's going to operate. A clear hypothesis, but no preconceived notions. You know, the best entrepreneurs uh, view their business as almost an experiment. They have a hypothesis about the market, but they're actively looking for the information that contradicts that or proves them right or proves them wrong. And then the second, and it's a funny combination of, you know, humility and intelligence. You can't start a a company without a certain amount of self-confidence and and belief in yourself. But I'm looking for people who are listening to processing, you know, information from people that know more than they do, um, but doing it in a way that is listening, but also using their own intelligence. Someone who is uh, humble enough to recognize what they don't know and take an input, but then has the intelligence and confidence to take that and say, okay, I've processed all that input and this is the answer I believe is the right thing for this company. Usually I'm looking for someone who has some kind of deep domain knowledge in the space they're going after. You know, why, why are you the person that should start this business? You know, what do you know that other people don't know? If you have some life experience or work experience that informs your understanding of this particular problem, I'm much more excited to, to back that. Thank you for sharing that. For me, actually, a huge light bulb went off on the last point that you mentioned, because going back to the um, female investment situation, that might actually also be a huge part that's missing off of initial pitches. I think um, women shine a lot of light on what they're trying to achieve, right? And the product and, and the, you know, whatever it is that they're pitching for the business. And as you mentioned, actually investors invest in the people themselves and they might find it difficult to shine a light on themselves and say, actually, this is why I'm the right person for this. And this is why I know so much. Um, so that in combination with the other two points you mentioned, I, I really, really love that. So thank you for sharing. You know, you yourself are hugely successful. What are three kind of skills that you have now that without which you wouldn't be where you are today? Well, let's start with luck. Right? <laughs> All of us that are successful have had a lot of luck along the way that probably starts with being born in the right areas so that it gives you certain advantages. So we have to acknowledge that we're not successful because we're uh, more talented or smarter, or harder working or anything, but we all got very lucky. So that's first and foremost. Second, um, for me, it's not necessarily a skill, but uh, 
very curious person. And I think one of the things that has made me successful as, a, as an investor is I'm just candidly fascinated by every entrepreneur that walks mm -hmm. in the door. <laughs> I love learning about their businesses. And you have to really love digging into both businesses, mark new markets, as well as uh, consolidating all that information from all the companies you work with and, and, and looking for the patterns and saying, I, I want to, I really want to understand what makes companies tick and what makes um, you know, learning about a new market. If a company comes in, I want to understand that market and figure out whether this, this this entrepreneur has the right thesis. So I think for me, just being insatiably curious has been a big thing. The other is what I'll call active introspection. You know, we talked about biases earlier mm -hmm. and the, the, the way that uh, venture capital is ultimately a gut decision. Do I feel like this is the right investment? And one of the things I've done over my career is try as much as possible to unpack that and and write it down. What makes a good business? I don't believe that we are with our guts uh, consistently good, right? So you may make some initial investment decisions based on gut, but the more you can make that data-driven, the more you can pull that out and say, what are the actual criteria I should be using to make this decision? Not, do I feel right about this entrepreneur, but why did this entrepreneur succeed that I backed and that one failed? Because I felt right about both of them. So how do I how do I introspect my own decision-making process and make that objective as possible? And that's really helped me make better decisions over the course of my career, looking for what are the right things to be looking at and try to make it repeatable and, and uh, objective as possible. Thank you so much for that, Philip. And as you've heard, he's an expert in product market fit and helping businesses find the right model for them. So if that's your jam, I've included all of his links and details below, as well as information on Orchid Black, his firm that helps good businesses thrive. Now, I would love to hear your perspective on that conversation. Do you believe there's a pipeline issue? And what did your career trajectory look like before you, you know, became a founder of your own tech company? Do you feel that there is a barrier for speaking technology and that language? Or does it lie completely elsewhere? Drop me an email on maxime at cuttingthroughtech because I'd love to hear from you and feature you on the show. And as always, if you're enjoying these investment impact series, do consider leaving us a review. We'd love to hear from you and see how you are enjoying the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. And with that said, see you next week. Oh, 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 o